Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. We're marking the beginning of a new year by returning to Room 106, the world of pain into which all new planning information is upended, and extracting the key things you need to know. It's been more than a month since our last episode, so there's a lot to sift through. Top of our agenda for today is the government's consultation on changes to the National Planning Policy Framework, as well as its proposed alterations to other parts of the planning system. We'll be examining how the government aims to change how housing need assessments should be applied, changes to the housing delivery test and lots more. With any luck, we'll find some other Room 106 inmates who can shed some light on the document. We'll also be rounding up the other key news that broke over the Christmas and New Year period. To give ourselves enough time to discuss the MPPF consultation, we are going to postpone our deep dive into the levelling up bill amendments agreed in mid-December to a bonus edition that will come out next week. But by the end of the show, you should still know enough to persuade your colleagues that you spent Christmas poring over planning policy. So, for the first time this year, time to stiffen the sinews and scale the pile of new policy. Ready to go in? OK. Well, here we are again in Room 106. It's got a lot fuller since we were last here in mid-December. There are piles of new policies and decisions to wade through. Ah, but thankfully, it looks as if some help might be at hand. Here's our regular columnist and Planning Officer Society Strategic Planning Subject Specialist, Katrina Riddell. Hello, Katrina. Hey, what a privilege to be in Room 106. Well, not many people say that, but I'm glad you feel that, Katrina. That's, That's great. And we're also joined by our special correspondent, Joey Gardner. Hi, Richard. Hi, John. Good to see you. Well, many thanks to both of you for joining us. Uh, this feels like something where many hands will, will make light work. John, can I hand over to you to start off with, just to give us a, a quick summary of the main changes and the main topics for discussion? OK, so just before Christmas, the Housing and Levelling Up Department published the long-awaited prospectus outlining changes to the MPPF, as well as the draft text changes themselves. This was published just before Christmas, so not at a great time for us in terms of our news coverage and probably not for the planning consultants and lawyers and planning officers who would have to spend much of their festive season ploughing through it. It covered lots of different areas of policy, but the key changes that we're going to look at in a bit more depth are around local housing need assessments and how it's applied, housing land supply calculations and the housing delivery test the plan-making process and the test of soundness. But there are a series of other areas where changes were proposed, including measures to tackle the slow build-out of permissions, onshore wind development and energy efficiency, environmental protection and tackling climate change and neighbourhood planning. And all of that, of course, you can read about on planningresource.co.uk. Okay, so let's start off by talking about the changes relating to local housing need, obviously an area which has caused huge political difficulties for the government over the the past year. Jerry, can I come to you first and ask you what changes are in store in terms of how councils are required to apply the standard method for assessing housing need? I suppose the top line headlines with this is that the standard method itself remains the same as it always has been or at least as as it has been for the last for the last couple of years and in addition 
it remains the case that in all but exceptional circumstances, councils are still going to have to use or are still being proposed to have to use the standard method as their starting point for the calculation of housing need in their areas, albeit there are some questions in the consultation as to whether to expand those uh, circumstances, I suppose, as to when they can use other methods and other ways to, uh, to assess housing needs. So if the standard method is saying the same, what's actually changing is that the draft of the MPPF is making clearer and expanding the sense that the standard method is to be considered and in the text of the MPPF, an advisory starting point rather than a definitive number for the housing requirement in your local plan. Now, this is not a big change. It was the standard method was never the final housing requirement. The planning practice guidance always said it was a starting point, but it was it was previously much clearer that it was a minimum number. Now it, the text is is seeming to s- suggest that councils should be meeting their needs assessments rather than as a minimum, they should be meeting them as far as possible, which seems to be a significant change. Now, the main difference in how local authorities are actually going to apply this is in how you get from this standard method assessment of housing need to the actual local plan housing requirement itself. And here there are two quite specific changes to the constraints, I suppose you would say, that might be applied to get you from from housing need to your housing requirement. And there's also the addition that local authorities are able to factor in past over delivery in the calculation of a housing requirement. Those two constraints that I've referred to that local authorities are now going to be able to factor in, which in effect can potentially trump the calculation of housing need are greenbelt and effectively, although the wording is potentially arguable, but I, I guess wording to the effect of preservation of local character, where it's saying that if meeting housing need requires you to build at such density that it means that you would have to risk your local character, then you wouldn't need to do so. So that's fundamentally how it changes how you get to your housing requirement or it proposes how it proposes to change that okay well thank you very much for that joey and you mentioned greenbelt it also proposes a change to the policy about amending greenbelt boundaries can you just briefly explain what that is yes i didn't detail what the greenbelt change was so the point about greenbelt is that it basically makes explicit that local authorities are not required to review their greenbelt boundaries for the purpose of meeting housing need. So it doesn't say anything to stop local authorities from doing this. The local authorities are perfectly within their rights to review their greenbelt boundaries to meet housing needs if they want to. But it makes it clear that it's it's nothing to do with the government if they do that. So it's all on the local authority, all the political risk of doing so is on the local authority, it's totally down to them. So that completely changes the balance of that calculation where a local authority would choose to do a, a Greenbelt review. And I think effectively, and certainly commentators are making this point, uh, makes the chances of, of Greenbelt reviews in most cases 
kind of vanishingly unlikely, really, certainly for the purpose of meeting housing need. Katrina, of course, one of the ways in which the planning system is supposed to work or was supposed to work to ensure that housing need was met was by the duty on neighbouring authorities to cooperate to meet need. What do the draft revisions say about the duty to cooperate? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The idea was that the needs would be met, but they'd maybe get met over a wider area than individually by local authorities. And I think one of the biggest challenges, as we know, has been that a lot of Greenbelt authorities are surrounded by Greenbelt authorities, so it makes the challenges very difficult. And the duty to cooperate, I think, was one of the, the proposals in the 2020 planning white paper that I think everybody was delighted to see. It's to be revoked. Um, as we know, it's a legal requirement, which makes it a really high bar for local authorities to cross that examination. It's the only thing in examination that if you fail, you have to go back to the start. It can't be fixed by inspectors at examination. And you know when, when the proposal came out to say we're going to scrap it and it is now in the levelling up and regeneration bill, I think there was pretty much unanimous support for that. But the concern I think now is that it is what it's been replaced with. And, and there's a couple of things. Firstly, and immediately, we've got the change to the test of soundness, which takes out references to um, the need to demonstrate how you've been working with neighbouring authorities. And that was actually quite a recent change to the test of soundness to take into account things like statements of common ground. And that, again, was to firm up the duty to cooperate and to, to make sure that local authorities at examination weren't just doing a process tick boxing exercise, but they actually had evidence through statements of common ground that they had worked properly with neighbours to resolve some of these, these issues. So that's now gone as part of the changes to the test of soundness. We are going to have the duty to cooperate replaced eventually. It's dependent, obviously, on making it through the final stages of the, the bill and a transition period. So probably it won't impact on most local plans being prepared now unless they're at a very early stage. I think the question is what it's been replaced with. And at the moment, it's an alignment policy is what it's been described as. And back to that point about the duty to cooperate being the one thing that stops a plan progressing through examination and out the other end, it's the, the, the no-go. But this new policy test, alignment test, is supposed to still test strategic planning and how local authorities have worked together. But the, the difference is that in this, an inspector, in theory, can make changes in order to allow the plan to progress and get out the other end. So it's very different to the legal test. I think the real concern about this, and it's been flagged right from the start, is that the duty to cooperate by its very nature impacts on more than one local authority. And when a local authority gets to examination, the inspector is only looking at that local plan. So how many powers will an inspector have to actually say, for example, if that local authority has says we've worked with the local authorities, we've not resolved the housing numbers and the inspector can then say, well, you need to meet so-and-so's need. But in more cases than not, it's their neighbours need to help them out. And, you know, under the current system, when a local, when an inspector looks at local plan, that's very difficult unless they're actually looking at a number of local plans together and looking at testing them together. So that, that's going to be a real challenge for inspectors. And then snuck away, I think, in the, the consultation document, which is interesting, there's a reference to the fact that they are looking specifically in terms of future changes on strategic planning, specifically around resolving some environmental issues. And I suspect that's 
much more to do with things like nutrient neutrality, water neutrality, and all these really heavy issues that local authorities have been facing across sub-regional areas. So I, I don't know whether that's specifically referring to that, but that it, it's sort of hidden away in the consultation document as opposed to the MPPF. But yeah, the, I think taken on a whole, we've got new proposals for spatial development strategies. There's going to have to be some really big incentives to make them work, to get local authorities to work together to do that. With the changes that Joey's just outlined, particularly around Greenbelt and things like that and housing needs, you know, what is the incentive for local authorities to work together to deal with meeting their total housing needs when it means that one of them is going to have to do something that politically might not be that acceptable? You know, on the whole, I think it weakens the whole approach to strategic planning and it's not helped by the, the local housing need, new approach to assessing local housing need. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Katrina. And uh, Joey, is there anything you want to add about the implications of the changes regarding the application of the standard method or the uh, Greenbelt boundaries? Well, certainly, I mean, just to carry on from what Katrina has been saying, really, uh, I mean, the people that I've been speaking to, I think the general view really, with a couple of exceptions, is that over time, there really isn't any way that people can see that this will do anything other than result in quite a significant drop in the sum of housing requirements from local authorities across the piece because of really of these exceptions that it sets in place to allow local authorities to get out essentially of meeting parts of their housing need. And in particular, because of what Katrina has been saying about the cancellation of the GT to cooperate and the lack of any, so far of any significant sense of what's going to replace it, this sense of what happens with those housing numbers that aren't being met in the individual authority in the sense at the moment that they're likely to fall down the cracks between authorities. And I mean, Katrina may want to come back on this, but the sense that I get from people is that the feeling is that they will be falling between the cracks and that that they won't be being picked up anywhere at the moment. The other thing I get that it is quite interesting is I guess, a sense from people as, as as to what they think is likely to happen now. I think the feeling, given the transition arrangement, is people sense that there's likely to be a hiatus in the immediate future in plan making if these come forward. So, so local authorities might look to take advantage of these new rules and therefore those with existing draft plans will pause their plans, put them under review, and seek to go back and review them in the light of these rules. So that might well slow down plan making. And we've seen evidence of that with the likes of Mole Valley, Tainbridge, Horsham, Stockport already. But a wider point is that in the medium term, a couple of people that I've been speaking to suggest this could well provoke a rash of plan making. Actually, this could provoke more plans to come forward because actually local authorities might decide that this is likely to be the most advantageous in terms of securing low housing numbers that policy is likely to be for some time and that they might well want to secure a a local plan under these circumstances you know before a, a government potentially changes or there's another potential change in policy direction in a more pro housing direction in the future okay well thanks joey katrina do you want to come back on that um, we're slightly short of time but it, it, do, do you think joey's what he's hearing about um 
this actually may be prompting a, a new wave of plan making is um, is well founded? I would be very surprised. I think that we've got a lot of local elections coming up in May. We've got a general election on the horizon and politics is just being fiercely fought over planning issues right across the country, especially around places like Birmingham and London, which is where we're we're looking at the potential big drop in housing numbers. So I'd be very surprised. I mean, just one other thing on that is that, you know, the 20 largest cities and towns, now we know they've got to deliver their 35% uplift. That is a huge task. It already was. It's now in the MPPF. It was only in guidance. Most of them are surrounded by Greenbelt. Most of them are surrounded by local authorities who now are unlikely to meet their own needs, let alone meet the needs of these cities. And I've just been looking at timescales for a lot of these 20 local authorities' plans. They are now getting out of date and that for a lot of them, there doesn't seem to be any incentive to move forward anytime soon because they haven't got the strategic planning mechanisms to do it. And the changes are potentially a whole lot worse for them now. Okay, well, thank you very much, Joey and Katrina. Really informative stuff. Please stick around while we talk to John about some of the other things in the bill and um, be interested to hear your perspective on on what he's got to say. John, you've been looking at what the NPPF consultation has to say about um, calculation of housing land supply and potential changes to the housing delivery test. What changes are being proposed as far as uh, housing land supply calculations are concerned? Well, these these are very significant changes. Uh, so at the moment, under the MPPF, all councils have to demonstrate a five-year supply of deliverable housing sites, and that's measured against their annual housing requirement. And if they can't, they're subject to the MPPF's presumption in favour of sustainable developments, which means their housing supply policies are rendered out of date, even if their local plan is less than five years old. So under the proposed changes, firstly, authorities with an up-to-date local plan, which means less than five years old, will no longer need to demonstrate their five-year housing land supply. And the government proposes that change to take effect when the revised MPPF is published in spring 2023. Alongside that, some authorities with emerging local plans will benefit from reduced housing land supply requirements. And the consultation document says that where these draft local plans have been submitted for examination or subject to a formal consultation, so under the Regulation 18 or Regulation 19 consultations, and they include both a policies map and proposed allocations towards meeting housing need, these authorities will only have to demonstrate a four-year housing land supply rather than the usual five. And these arrangements would apply for two years after the change to the MPPF take effect. Another very significant change is that councils would no longer have to demonstrate a buffer on top of their five-year housing land supply, which will have implications for the housing delivery test, which I will get on to. So at the moment, all councils have to demonstrate an additional 5% buffer on top of their five years. But if they under-deliver on housing under the housing delivery test, that's increased to 20%. And it's 10% where an authority wants to publish an annual position statement setting out their um, their five-year supply. But all that would go under the changes. So for all councils, they'd see their housing land supply target reduced if you're getting rid of these buffers. Councils would also be allowed to include historic oversupply or undersupply in their land supply calculations. 
So overall, these changes will certainly ease the current requirements. And it's important to point out that these these changes will come to effect for decision-making, so that's, that includes uh, appeal decisions, as soon as the final version of the revised MPPF is published. There'll be no transitional period. Okay, so tell us about what's happening or, or what's being proposed to happen to the housing delivery test. Well, again, these are pretty significant changes. The government is proposing taking account of permissions granted in the test. So at the moment, it just measures the number of new homes created over a three-year period compared to the council's housing requirement. Under the change, what it calls evidence of sufficient deliverable permissions could help councils escape the most severe sanction under the housing delivery test, which is the MPPF's presumption in favour of sustainable development. And that's for councils that deliver less than 75% of their housing requirement. So that penalty would be turned off if the council can show sufficient permissions to meet their own annual housing requirements. And the revised MPPF says that authorities would be exempt from the presumption if permissions have been granted for homes in excess of 115% of their housing requirements over the delivery test and monitoring period. Another big change is that one of the penalties in, in the housing delivery test, which is increasing a council's housing land supply buffer to 20% if they score under 85% in the test, that would be scrapped because all housing land supply buffers would be removed, as, as previously discussed. So under the changes, there there should be two penalties. The presumption, if you get under 75%, and having to produce a housing delivery action plan if you score under 95%. And on top of that, the government is considering suspending or amending the consequences of failing the 2020 delivery test when it publishes the results. So it's yet to publish the results. They should be due pretty soon. But it's asking whether they should, because of all these changes, suspend the results this year. And finally, the publication dates for the housing delivery test, which had at the moment, it should be every November, but under the changes, they're suggesting that it'll be each winter, giving a bit more leeway for the government to calculate it all. Katrina, do these strike you as significant changes and, and what, what sort of implications do you see from them? Yeah, they are they are fairly significant. And really, five-year land supply, house and delivery tests were really the, the only major sticks, I think, that developers had, um, house builders had in terms of trying to crack the whip for local authorities in terms of their, their plan making. And that's gone alongside the changes that, that Joey outlined around Greenbelt. We always knew that very special circumstances was a hard test at appeals. This will make it much harder because, you know, five-year land supply and that tilted balance was one of the things that allowed some of these appeals to pass. So I think it is just going to make it much, much harder. And, and those authorities sitting with a lot of green belt and very little land to actually allocate are, are sitting pretty. It's going to be really tough. I have to say also, I think for any inspector that's having to deal with this, they're going to have to need a maths degree. Right. <laughs> it's a very complicated process. Right. Right. Thanks very much. Joey, is there anything uh, anything particularly you wanted to add? Yeah, well, I just think the key point from um, the people I've been speaking to is this just intensifies, I guess, the concerns of those from the development side of the equation about the changes to the housing needs side being proposed on the MPPF, that, it, that it, over time that will reduce the amount of housing being planned for. This intensifies that because this will take effect in terms of development management as soon as this new policy comes live. So 
literally as soon as this is uh, made live, this will take effect in appeal decisions and in development management decisions. So it will start having an implication straight away in, in the way that uh, Katrina describes in those appeal decisions, you know, the, the ability to use the five-year land supply as a pressure to apply the tilted balance has been one of those things that the development industry has has in large part relied upon over the last few years. Okay, well, thanks, Joey. Many thanks to you and to Katrina. We'll leave you here sifting through the consultation while John brings our listeners up to date on some of the other key news stories that broke over the Christmas break. So obviously the big news was the MPPF consultation, but there are other big stories over the um, festive period which we've covered on planning resource. One of the biggest ones was the government's quarterly figures on councils facing special measures. So it published its quarterly planning statistics in mid-December, and as part of that, it publishes what it calls its planning performance measures, and it updated its figures for the councils that have had the most decisions overturned at appeal. This showed that there were five authorities over the threshold for the number of decisions overturned as appeals over uh, a two-year period. And as usual, that story got a lot of interest from our readers. What's the potential consequence of that, of, of them having being underneath that threshold? Well, at the moment, this isn't one of the official designation periods. Um, so at the moment, there's no consequences for those councils, but it just means they're in the sort of danger zone. So if they don't raise their game in the next quarter or two, then they could be in danger of designation. And as, as our readers, most of our readers will know, um, Uttlesford Council in Essex was designated last year under this criteria of having decisions overturned as appeal. And it's still under special measures. And we've seen in Uttlesford a lot of developers have started um, submitting applications to the planning inspectorate. Just bypassing the council. That's right, yeah. Which are the councils? The councils are the five that are over the threshold because it's over 10% are Bromsgrove, Fareham, Uttlesford, Chorley, Basingstoke and Dean. And this is all in the category of decisions on major district level applications. So other categories are decisions on county matters, which includes county council matters, which includes oil and gas applications and also non-major decisions. So there were no councils over the thresholds in those two categories. Another big story was a staff-owned planning consultancy buying a rival firm and opening a new regional office. So DLP Consulting Group announced that it had acquired Cass Associates, which is a 40-year-old Liverpool-based multidisciplinary practice, and it will open a new office in the northwest as a result. We've had more councils delaying and amending, significantly amending their local plans in light of the government's planning changes. So that's both Michael Gove's announcement on the changes in mid-December, the changes to local housing need, and also then the MPPF changes, which were published before Christmas, setting out the details of those. So we've had Horsham and Tainbridge councils postponing meetings on their local plans. They're due to consider the next stages, and they've said they're going to postpone those in light of the Gove announcements. And also Mole Valley had, before Christmas, announced it would delay its local plan work and then last week it's come out and said that it's going to ask the planning inspector because its plan's currently under examination to remove all the greenbelt sites from its local plan so this is a very advanced local plan it's under examination so that's a very significant change to make at this 
late stage, and it cited the um, MPPF changes in doing that. We've also had some notable court cases, a judge ruling that a new inspector must decide a billboard appeal after what it called a seriously underqualified junior officer, the planning inspectorate, wrote an initial report on the decision, and also parish council succeeding in overturning five housing allocations in the local plan of its um, local district council. And we've had a couple of big appeal decisions that have gone down well with readers. An inspector refusing a 375 home appeal in Hampshire, despite the council's lack of a five-year housing land supply. And another inspector refusing 450 homes on Greenbelt in Buckinghamshire, despite describing the council's development plan as woefully out of date. Okay, interesting. Of course, more details of all of those stories on planning resource, as you say. Have you got a quirky story of the week? Yes. So it's the latest in the Jeremy Clarkson's long-running planning battle with West Oxfordshire District Council. The latest news that we reported yesterday is that he's announced he's shutting down the restaurant on his diddly squat farm after saying that he'd been thwarted by an enforcement notice from the local authority. So this time last year, the council refused permission for him to open a new restaurant on his farm. His farm is the subject of a very popular TV show on Amazon Prime. And so they refused permission. They said the proposal was extremely divisive and raised concerns about the impact on AOMB. However, he went ahead and opened it anyway last summer. And he said at the time he'd um, made use of a planning loophole. It appears that the council subsequently launched an investigation and now Clarkson's appears to have given up and saying that the, the council enforcement team is because of the enforcement notice, then he, he's going to close the restaurant down. So it's a, a bit of a success for the local authority, but not so much for Jeremy Clarkson. Throughout this whole process, he was very critical of planning and mm. described planning officers as not... I can't not very bright, I think he said. Not, yeah. very, not very bright people. Has he sort of announced his closure with a in a declaration of protest at what the planning system is doing to an honest local rural businessman or has, has he has he on this occasion sort of uh, not really commented on the planning aspect of it well the article was in the daily mirror and it's just quoted from a letter that he's written to the council and it's just a few short excerpts from the letter saying i no longer wish to open a restaurant adding that he'd been thwarted by the enforcement notice so there's not much detail there but it's he strikes a bit of a slightly resigned tone mm. not his usual bombastic self so, um, but it'd be interesting to see the, the letter in detail and see if there are any other claims made there. But they do interview a lot of local people who seem to be very happy that it's that the restaurant's going to be closed because they weren't happy about all the the traffic in what is a small village. Interesting. Well, um, thank you very much, John. I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another few weeks summarised. Yes, we'll be back with a bonus edition next week where we take a deep dive into the levelling up bill amendments agreed in mid-December. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Nav Powell and Hannah Holt from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. And thanks for listening. See you next time.